Yes, gracious God, we are just thankful for your goodness and your gifts to us and for your word. And uh, we thank you this morning that you have given us Bardo and we trust you've worked with him in his study of this text. And I pray that you would speak through him now, uh, give him wisdom and clarity and give us minds and hearts to hear what you have to say through him. So we just pray over this time and we pray over Bardo in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. We live in a divided world, a desperate world trying to convince itself that it's united, a world that boasts about diversity and acceptance of fluidity, where someone can call themselves one thing one day and something completely different the next, an approach to relieve misery, to transform Uh, The inner condition is by changing what's on the outside, by jumping between religions or changing our environment or changing our prepositions or our appearance in the hopes of finding belonging or understanding who we are. But the triune God of Scripture has put a great light into the world that answers this longing and confusion. A promise of identity, contentment, unity, and diversity. He's provided a way out of the darkness, and the church must be the tower from which that great light can be seen. So we're carrying on in our series in Ephesians. This morning we'll be looking at the first few verses of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me. Just to bring to memory some of the previous chapters before we start. Ephesians 1 spoke about the blessing of the believers in Christ, our predestination, our adoption, our redemption, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Shane Wildemoth, I think, stressed the importance of prayer to us and our dependence on God. Lewis then introduced us to Ephesians chapter 2 and the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Jeff then just helped us grasp the scandal of foreigners sharing in the promises given to the Jewish patriarchs. The reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And he went on in Ephesians chapter 3 to explain the revelation of the mystery of Christ the fact that God has equalized us and how we've come into the spiritual blessings of Israel. He challenged us to be so full of Christ that when someone knocks at the door, they find Jesus. And he made made it clear to us last week uh, that chapter four moves from information to instruction the living out of these Jews and Gentiles and the coming together of this new body. So this morning, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, I want to echo Paul's exhortation to you, to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And we'll consider the inclusivity and the exclusivity of the nature of unity 
that reveals the triune God that will cause the world to look to Him. So firstly, from verses 1 to 3, we'll examine the inclusive nature of unity, its call, its manner, its focus, and then from 4 to 6, the exclusive nature of unity. Let's uh, read together now. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So to start, we'll be looking at the inclusive nature of unity. We've already recalled the previous chapters as Paul intended us to do with the opening words, therefore. We've acknowledged these biblical truths. Therefore, walk in alignment with them. Be what you are. Be what you're called to be. But before we can even begin, before we can consider the exhortation, what does Paul mean by called? Or can I phrase it this way? Have you been called? Because if not, why go on? And if so, how do you know? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He lived a perfect life, a perfect obedient life to the law of God at all times. He suffered, he died on the cross in perfection. He took upon him the sin of the world. He didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. He overcame death and he offers life to all those that will believe in him. This is the essence of the gospel. But it's also just a statement of fact. As James 2.19 indicates, faith isn't just knowing the facts. So, so faith is more than knowing the facts. What does this calling look like? How do you know that you've been called? Because Paul assumes that you know. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So calling is fellowship with Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says that believers share in a heavenly calling. And 1 Peter reminds us that we have been called out of darkness, into fellowship with Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 also says, He has called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but, because, but for His own purpose and grace. Similarly, back in Ephesians chapter 2, we read, For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. So here is the probing consideration as you ask yourself, have I been called? Let's start with the obvious. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? A faith that not only recognises your need for God's grace and forgiveness, but also a deep desire to have a relationship with Him. You want to commune with God, to follow Him. But not only do you long for this deep relationship, you want to read and understand His Word. To commune with Him in prayer and in worship. Do you have an inner conviction or a sense of God's presence that draws you to seek Him and understand His will for your life? Are there evidences in your life that can give you this assurance? Has there been a change in your attitude, your behavior, your priorities, the things that you value, so that they align more closely with God's purposes? And are growing in your faith from year to year, perhaps, probably, not as quickly as you would like. But you see it, and I hope that others see it too. And finally, importantly, as it relates to our passage today, do you desire fellowship with other believers? Do you feel yourself drawn toward godly men and women? If you cannot identify with these things, my dear friend, I plead with you, start right now. Plead with God, speak to him. Until your inward disposition changes, don't stop. Until you can say that you've been truly born again. For those of you who Paul named as called, let's now consider this exhortation. To have a relationship with God is not a trivial thing. A close relationship with an earthly king is not something to be despised or a relationship that's readily neglected. It's a special position of immense value and benefit. It would be one thing if you and this king grew up together as childhood friends, but if he sought you out, though you had nothing to offer him, at great cost to himself, and called you into fellowship with him, would this not be an even greater privilege? Paul says... I, a prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of your calling. As a prisoner, an example to the Ephesians, he's able to call them to live fully for Christ. The reason Paul is in prison is because of the good news. He does not refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome, but rather a prisoner of the Lord. Christ is his Lord. And he will submit himself in all things to his master. Yet unlike a prisoner, Paul is exercising authority. He writes to exhort, to urge, to implore the Ephesians, not simply to walk in their calling, but to walk worthy of it. In the Greek, the word uh, translated worthy here is axios, and it has the idea of weight. 
from which we get the English word axiom. It's not a word that I'm familiar with, but it means to be of equal weights. So you can imagine a set of scales. On the one side is your heavenly position with this great king. You can call him any time, any place. He's actively working in your life. He's working all things for your good. And on the other side of the scale, Paul is calling you to daily live in equal measure. This is an impossible exhortation. Yet it gives, yet God gives us grace and grace and grace. And so it compounds and the weighty worth of his calling grows so that the immeasurable riches of his grace grows and grows and grows. And his mercies become new every morning and God is glorified in your walk. This is our calling. But Paul has a specific application in mind. Let's look at verse 2. It reads, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility before God, absolutely, because salvation is not of us. But the focus of this chapter is on the one another. The calling to work, work worthy, the calling to walk worthy is a calling to love the family of God, bearing with one another in love. In light of the fact that God has been so patient toward me, I must surely be patient toward my brother. When Jesus was asked what, the great, what is the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, he didn't just stop at loving God, but he went on to add, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Bearing with one another in love is not simply staying calm. Staying calm on the outside, boiling on the inside, nor does it mean simply tolerating each other. It's bearing in love. Paul writes, Paul writes this because he understands that it's not always easy to love each other. Scripture records how Paul and Barnabas argued over John Mark and even went separate ways for a while. The word bearing in the Greek text, aniko, has the emphasis to patiently tolerate someone who's difficult or foolish. However, consider the ultimatum from Revelation chapter 2 where we find another letter to the church in Ephesus. It reads, To the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands, say this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have persevered and you've endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Sounds really good, doesn't it? But then it says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This church would cease to be a church if they did not walk in the love they had at first. The Holy Spirit will not dwell in a church that has abandoned its first love. And as John so convictingly tells us in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he does not see. Love is first in the list as we consider the fruit of the Spirit. It's the theme that dominates John's writings. It's the first item for prayer in Paul's petition to the Philippians. Now, the church was made up of former Gentiles and Jews, Jews who knew their Bibles, who had memorized entire sections of the Old Testament, and Gentiles who did not. There were differences in customs, opinions on clothing, music. Some felt comfortable eating one thing, others didn't. There was even a different social hierarchy. That is why this verse is qualified with patience, with gentleness, with humility. It can be easy to tolerate a mildly annoying person. But patience is especially needed when a brother or sister in Christ is foolish or difficult. It happens. This unity of the Spirit has little to do with us being all the same. This is the inclusive nature of unity. Everyone is different, yet we're all part of one body and indwelt by one Spirit. Now, I'm not going to give you an out here. You cannot bear with someone by not coming to church. The one body is made up of all believers. And Paul's exhortation is not just to avoid your calling, but walk worthy of it. You cannot attain to the fullness of spiritual maturity by avoiding your calling. How many spiritual fruit can you bear when you're never around anyone who challenges you? So if you really want to be spiritual, go hang out with those people that you find challenging to love. We are to walk worthy of our calling. We are to do it in love. And verse 3 tells us the purpose. Let's have a look. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The New American Standard saying, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul, who also refers to himself later as an ambassador in chains, the prisoner in the Lord is exhorting the church to make every effort to do your utmost to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the shackle of peace. This bond is intended to constrain us, 
And Romans chapter 14 says something similar. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Not a superficial peace, like the prophet Ezekiel warns us about. Those that say peace when there is no peace. He compares it to merely plastering over a cracked wall so that when the rain comes, the wall falls down. Peace isn't letting things slide and loading them up into a spiritual backpack of resentment. It's taking the hard road. At the same time, it's about being careful, diligent, not to break up the unity of the Spirit, admitting mistakes, accepting rebuke, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and love. When Paul speaks of keeping the unity of the Spirit, it is a call to preserve something that already exists. Paul is not suggesting that we erase all denominational boundaries to create one big megachurch. There is only one Spirit, and He unites all of us in Christ. We are all called to preserve that unity. That is the intention of our worthy walk. Our God is a God of reconciliation. If we recall Ephesians chapter 2, 14, it says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh and the dividing wall of hostility. And we as the body of Christ have a duty of cosmic reconciliation to bring all peoples before the Lord. If we are to be effective in this, in proclaiming the gospel, in missions, in Christian living, then we need to conform to the church as she is divinely purposed. When Christ's body is seen to be the community of reconciliation, then we can convincingly proclaim the gospel of reconciliation to others. We cannot expect to be a divided church and be the salt of the earth. We cannot expect the world to understand the love of Christ if we have no love for one another. As Philippians chapter 2 says, if you, really, if you are really a participant in the Spirit, then you are to be of one accord and of one mind. The inclusive nature of unity is that it transcends differences, that, that <laughs> transcends the different ways that God has made us. Our past, our parents, our language, all these things. But we are to be one ensemble. When you listen to an orchestra, not every person plays the same instrument. Not every instrument plays the same note. But at the director, direction of the conductor, there is harmony and there is beauty in the coming together of every different instrument to one aim, to one purpose, to one song. God's masterpiece of reconciliation. And this brings us to the second consideration of unity. The second aspect of the nature of unity that reveals the triune God that will cause the world to look to him is the exclusive nature of unity. 
It's the exclusive nature of unity from verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Having considered the importance of unity, let us now consider what that unity means. The verses before us make up seven doctrinal notches. They use the word one to point to a fundamental Christian value or or faith. If you're familiar with the Scripture, the Scripture's use of the number seven, then may I suggest that the seven here, the fact that there are seven of them, is no accident. Paul's putting us to us the complete, the perfect unity. Not unity at any price, but a unity grounded in the three persons of the Trinity. First, we see the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and His work in bringing unity. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit. As we mentioned earlier, the body is not a man-made institution. The Holy Spirit creates, coordinates, orchestrates the body of Christ. Believers across every ethnic group, culture, and social boundary, the same Spirit who empowered Jewish believers at Pentecost fell on Gentile believers in the house of Cornelius and indwell Hukunui believers today. We feel a connection when we meet someone else who shares a passion with us, such as rugby or motorsport or Lego or dancing, whatever it might be. But when we meet another believer who could be completely different, then there's a skip in our inner being. There's a delight. There's a warmth. There's an invisible bond. Not only has God reconciled us to himself through Christ, but he's reconciled us to one another. Verse four equates this one body and one spirit with, one, with having one hope. Our calling, having already considered our calling, let us turn our eyes to this one hope. <laughs> this hope is the expectation of eternal life, salvation through Christ, a shared longing for Christ's return. But we have a pledge, a guarantee a glory to come. We've received the first instalment of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit of promise in our hearts. The fruit that we bear in Christ is a foretaste of the future. The love that comes without condition, the peace that surpasses understanding, the joy that cannot be taken, the strength, when we are weary. These things are the appetizers, the tidbits of the bliss that is to come. For we shall share the glory of Christ. The next threefold acclamation points to the second person of the Trinity, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 5, it reads, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The term Lord, which was the title for Yahweh in the Old Testament, is no surprise to us here. Paul uses it often. And again, he implies the Lordship of Christ. We don't have another master, and our master is not divided. And writing to the Corinthians, Paul rebukes them on this matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reads, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all be in agreement and there be no division among you, but that you be made complete and of the same mind and of the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there is quarrelling among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? Was what Paul taught important? It is. But our striving is not to conform to Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham or Elizabeth Elliot. We strive to increasingly, increasingly conform to Christ's likeness. God's eternal purpose has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and He fills the universe with His sovereign reign. The head of the body is Christ, and our one faith is in Him. One name in whom we genuinely trust, but also one body of truth. One faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Believers share in a common faith in Christ's redemptive work. To, to deny the essential doctrines of Christianity is to abandon the Christian faith. To embrace them leads to spiritual maturity. Let's consider 1 John chapter 4, 2 to 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. It doesn't matter what the Spirit says. The fundamental truths of the faith, what the Bible teaches, is immutable. It's part of the exclusive nature of the true unity. God's Word does not change, and God does not change. Furthermore, there is only one baptism, a death to self and a living to Christ. Now, Paul isn't making a distinction between water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit. These hair-splitting distinctions were all part of the same transition of the old life to the new life in New Testament times. To have one without the other was an anomaly. But if it's any comfort, we use this type of language all the time. 
A marriage ring doesn't really bind two people together, nor does a flag unite a nation. We also say things like, light this candle candle in honor of their memory, or I am saved by the cross. The point is that Jewish and Gentile believers alike acknowledge one Lord, share one faith in Him, and have, have undergone one shared baptism in His name. And we see this very thing in Galatians chapter 3, from 23, 26 to 29. For you all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. As Paul states in Colossians, God's purpose through Christ is to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of Christ, through him, reconciling things upon earth and things in heaven. And thirdly, uh, in our text back in Ephesians chapter 4, we see the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and his work in bringing unity. Verse 6. There is one God and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Holy Spirit, the focus of verse 4, and the Lord Jesus from verse 5 are not viewed as separate entities. There is one God. This flows out of what he's already said earlier in, in, in earlier chapters. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. God is the Father who belongs. God is the Father of all those who belong to the family of faith. Both Jews and Gentiles without distinction. If you, belo if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. This exclusive unity and that all things are only brought together in Christ is carried further in Ephesians. We see back in chapter 1, verse 10, it tells us God's purpose is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, to bring all creation to the point where it finds its true head in Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 6, in Ephesians 4, verse 6, we're encouraged, we encounter the exclusive nature of unity and the sovereignty of God. He is the father of all creation, orchestrating all things, ordering, ordering things to his divine plan. As our father, he holds authority over everything, serving as the author and sustainer of life. His control is absolute and nothing is beyond his reach. Furthermore, God is through all, actively working every circumstance and event. Through Christ, who mediates our relationship with him, God acts as our Father. He is also in all, 
dwelling within all believers through the Holy Spirit, the intimate presence that shapes our lives. God's universal rule is carried out to achieve the ultimate purpose, uniting all things in Christ. The unity within the Trinity lays the foundation for the church. Through the church, God's wisdom is showcased to the entire universe. The church serves as a glimpse of God's ultimate plan with believers demonstrating unity that reflects God's final goal. In closing, let us look back on the exclusive and inclusive nature of unity that revealed the triune God and will cause the world to look to him. Firstly, diversity, far from destroying unity, will, if characterized, characterized with humility, gentleness, and patience toward fellow Christians, will promote it. The inclusive nature of unity is that true, lasting, God-grounded unity is more than being thankful for the blessings that we have in Christ, but it's also living in a manner worthy of them. And Christ has found our identity, contentment, and unity. Loving God means loving brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith. A love for all the saints, even the foolish and difficult ones. for the purpose of building up the church, to be a beacon of light in a dark and desperate and divided world, a love that bears with one another and preserves the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Secondly, we looked at the exclusive nature of unity. There is only one gospel. There is only one law. There is one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There is no other name by which men may be saved. There is no other religion that can offer peace with God. Our God is not divided, but he's over all, through all, and indwelling every believer. This is the intention of our worthy walk, to conform the church, to conform to the church as she is divinely, divinely displayed. <laughs> so that the world can understand the love of Christ, the pilot project of God's purposes. Paul was willing to suffer imprisonment and had many times. He didn't have any second thoughts in exchanging his life for the one that he was called to. For those who have tasted the first fruits, who share in the same promises and have the same hope in, in your calling, Remember that even the morsels of promise that we have here on earth outweigh prison, the pleasures of the world, the earthly ties, the conflicts with other believers. We look forward to the day when Christ returns. We look together, we say, come Lord Jesus, come bring everything into perfect subjection, perfect unity. In closing, I just want to pray the. Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 3, 14. 
For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.